How do you make sure that something you love is preserved? There are a lot of different ways to do that. You could lock it away in a safe. You could build a wall around it and post a ceaseless watch there to make sure that nobody could ever get to it. If you had enough time, you could create some cultural values that that made people want to save it. All of those methods take time. They take hard work, and most of them take a lot of money. It would seem to me that the far more efficient way, both in time and resources, to preserve something would be to make a copy, to make sure that you always had a copy of it, by making that thing self-replicating. And I feel confident making that statement because that's the way God designed the universe to work. And it's also the way that Christianity is designed to work. We're going to talk about that today. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. We read it earlier. We're going to start there. Probably come back to it a couple times. But that's where we'll be today. Thank you for being here. For those joining us in the room, I'm grateful that you're here on site. For those watching online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. Online, on-site, doesn't matter. Uh, As Gene mentioned, please fill out your connection card. Um, Next week is Mother's Day. We're starting a brand new sermon series uh, called Virtuous Reality. All right? And so we're going to talk for for several weeks, we're going to talk about virtue. Just good, old-fashioned goodness. What is that? Why is that important? Okay? And next week being Mother's Day, we thought it would be important to talk about the virtue of love. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, next Sunday, talk about these seven classic virtues. Uh, on these special Sundays, like Mother's Day, it's been Chapel Rock's norm to create some kind of, uh, you know, vignette in the lobby for you to take a picture, a uh, photo wall or something, and we'll sure have that next week, but we thought, hey, it's Mother's Day. Can we, can we crank that up a notch and do something fun? Since we're talking about virtuous reality, and I don't know about you, but now that, you know, I've become a grandfather, it, it, we have to put up with like FaceTime videos of little Wesley, right? As he's, you know, cooing and, and rolling around and stuff. And that's, it's just not the same as being there. But sometimes that's what you got to do. So we thought, well, we're talking about, uh, you know, virtuous reality. This VR and the he- fancy headset and, you know, the world, listen, the VR didn't have anything on the real, real thing. But sometimes it's nice just to be able to see a, a picture of your family. So rather than a static picture, we want you to get something a little extra next week. Uh, so moms, check this out. We're going to do something so you can get a, a 3D VR picture of your family. Like this. Look. It's right. <laughs> a ball team here. And it's, it's, there's this little doodad. They'll take your phone, right, and mount it in the thing. And it spins around on an armature and comes back around and takes a, a 3D video of your kids, all right? So moms, you don't have to worry about one of your, if one of your kids looks weird from a certain angle, you know, you can, you can get them all in there and pick your favorite. Angle, not kid. Um, so for the last several weeks, we've been using the cultural touch point of the Disney Plus show, The Mandalorian, as a springboard to talk about primitive Christianity. Uh, in the show, the Mandalorians commit themselves to something they call the way. It, it's the creed. It's the way by which they live their lives. And they teach and train other Mandalorians to follow it. And I see in that some echoes of what primitive Christianity was like. Before followers of Jesus were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. And so we've been talking about that. We're going to wrap up that series today by, by talking about the idea of imitating Jesus 
And when we, when we imitate Jesus, when we replicate the life of Christ in our community, then we have every reason and we have every right to say to one another, this is the way. In episode 8 of the first season of The Mandalorian, there's a flashback. It takes us back to the time that Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, was a child. And it takes place during the Clone Wars. Many of you would remember, how many of you saw the original trilogy in the theater, right? I was two, I was one when the first one came out, so I don't remember that. But my dad took me to see Empire Strikes Back. I remember that as a kid. And then they had the sequel trilogy in the early 2000s. So the show, The Mandalorian, is actually set during that, uh, it's the second movie in that trilogy, Attack of the Clones, 2002, when that came out. Then six years later, there was an animated series called The Clone Wars. The show, The Mandalorian, is set in that time frame. And in that world, there's a, a, a robot army, they call them droids in the Star Wars universe, and, and they're, they're run, there's this separatist break-off group of the uh, Republic, and they're trying to, you know, run their own deal. And what happens is, the spoiler, uh, these droids kill his parents. And they're about, this battle droid is about to kill him, and then the Mandalorians swoop in, and they rescue Din. And you can see this picture, like he's, he's just a little kid, right? And this Mandalorian warrior, this brave guy jumps in, and he grabs him, and he pulls him out of the pit, and he saves his life. And then he takes him off to the side and he's, he's talking to him and you can see little Din nod his head like he's asked, do you want to come with us? Do you want to be a Mandalorian like we are? Yeah. And so he, this jetpack that they have, right? He flies off into the air. His commander says, yeah, take him, go. And he uses his jetpack to get Din out of the fight and we're left to assume that this mystery warrior, whoever he is, becomes Din's mentor his trainer on his journey to become a Mandalorian. And this story, told in flashback, confirms something that was a unique aspect of Mandalorian culture and really one of the driving reasons why I chose to do this series. And, and, and this is, this, I know some of you are like, man, he is such a nerd. I'm so glad this is almost over. I, I get, okay, it, granted, but... <laughs> Thank you. The little one over here laughed. That was great. She doesn't even know why, but it's funny. Um, I love it. Here's the, here's, here's the thing. The Mandalorian culture does not grow biologically. It does not grow numerically through reproduction of offspring. Think about it. Both the men and the women fight. It's a warrior culture. They never take their helmet off in the presence of a living being. For those two reasons, dating, marriage, babies, kind of tough, <laughs> right? Is she pretty? Um, right? They don't know. They have no idea. So how do they grow? How do they get more Mandalorians? They rescue orphans, which in the show they call foundlings. They go in and they find these children who have been abandoned through war, privation, hardship, whatever, and they ask them, do you want to come with us? Do you want to be trained? Do you want to learn to be a Mandalorian like we are? Yeah. Okay, come on. And so this warrior, whoever he was, picks up little Din Djarin and, and he trains him as a Mandalorian. He puts on the helmet, never to take it off again in the presence of a living being. And then they go on a quest and they go on journeys together and he trains him how to fight and he trains him how to be part of their culture. The New Testament has a word for that process. It's called discipleship. 
Here's what I want to tell you today. The way of Jesus is self-replicating. In other words, when we follow the way that Jesus himself created, it creates more and more disciples who follow the way. And we can see the way to replication reinforced two ways in the New Testament. Here's the first one. Jesus modeled it. Jesus modeled it. I, how, how many of you learn best by, by watching somebody do something and then they help you do it and then they, they hang there while you do it, right? That's a great way to learn. I'm a reader, so usually I'll read about it first. But the best way to learn how to do something is to watch someone do it, then do it with them, and then have them do it with you, and then they watch you and... Man, that's a great way to learn. That's exactly what Jesus did with his disciples. That's exactly how he trained them, right? It's a great way to learn, so that's why he taught his disciples that way. Look again with me at Matthew 4, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Older translations will say, I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, the scholar D.A. Carson tells us that the Greek language had all sorts of phrases for the expression, follow me, but they all presuppose a physical following of Jesus, right? His followers didn't just listen to him. They literally walked behind him. They replicated his life. They followed his steps, and they became, as it were, his trainees. Here's what I want to tell you today. Following Jesus means imitating Jesus in every aspect of your life, including calling others to follow Jesus. We make disciples of him, not of ourselves, but of him. And so following Jesus means imitating Jesus, and that includes calling other people to follow him. I would go so far as to say that if you're not actively discipling someone into following Jesus, that your followership is deficient. I'm going to say that again. If you're not actively discipling someone into following Jesus, your followership is deficient. Don't tell me you're a follower of Jesus if you're not at least trying to make more disciples for him. If not, then you are, as my friend Kyle Eidelman says, just a, you're not a follower, you're just a fan. Jesus modeled this for us and he calls us to imitate him. We're, we're all supposed to fish. Some of you would know the name Jill Briscoe, famous English uh, Christian author. Jill, tell, she got saved when she was in college. And she, wanted, she was convicted by this and wanted to tell her friends about Jesus. And so she, she sent out invitations to a party. And she said, I want you to come hear about the new man in my life. Oh. And so all her friends came to this party that she hosted expecting her to announce her engagement. Instead, she presented the gospel. The man, of course, being Jesus of Nazareth. And some were ticked. They left in a huff. Others were confused. What in the world was that? But a few were intrigued. And two even gave their lives to Christ because of that. Jesus modeled this. He, said, this is, he showed us how to do it. But not only did he model it, he commanded it. It goes beyond just setting a good example. He told us to do it. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no problem ignoring the, the counsel and advice of people I don't respect. 
Maybe you can identify, right? Like if I don't respect that person and they tell me what I should do, it's real easy for me to go, nah, pass. I don't care. But somebody that I really respect, someone that I hold in honor, when they have advice for me, when they have counsel for me, I'm going to listen. I'm going to pay very close attention. (laughs) If that's true of human beings, how much more than the God of the universe in human form? He said, do it. Shall we stand for the benediction? No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um, (laughs) He said, you should do this. We don't have this option with Jesus. Look with me at Matthew 28. This is probably, I hope this is familiar to you. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them, the 12, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now this command, and and there's, there's four, we would say there's four verbs in the sentence. In the original language, there's only one. The verb is make disciples. The other four things, the other three rather, that we would call verbs going and baptizing and teaching are in in the original part of speech they're participles but the way that the original language is structured is those have imperative force even though they're not actually imperative verbs they all carry the weight of that because of the way that this is structured and so I tell people this in our wired class right this command of Jesus springs from his authority and, and and he says I because of who he is right all authority has been given to me we have to do it if nothing else But here's the other part of this that I think bears some time. Jesus gives this to his apostles. He gives this command to his disciples prior to the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is before Acts 2. Now, Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that that God has given the church apostles and evangelists and, and, and prophets and pastors and teachers, right? So on some level, um, people, there have been people with certain uh, personalities, gift mixes, whatever you want to call it, that are wired up to serve in those capacities. Probably the best title for what I do is evangelist, someone who tells people the good news about Jesus. All right? Every now and then, prophet. You ever feel your toes stepped on? That's that prophet thing kicking in. But those, when those things are listed, when the spiritual gifts are listed, evangelism is never listed as one of them. I want you to hear me. There's no spiritual gift of evangelism. There's no spiritual gift of fishing. It is a command that is binding on all Christians for all times till Jesus comes back. He commanded it. And the good news is because of his death and resurrection, his real presence is with you at all times, he says, but especially when you're fishing. (laughs) Especially when you're trying to do this. In recent years, there's been a lot of talk about how the church is, is not even keeping many of the kids who grew up in the faith. And for a long time, this would happen, right? They would, they would grow up, they'd go off to college, they might meet a professor who kind of wrecked them for a while, and, and then they'd get married and they have kids and they realize, wow, the world really is broken, and wow, the gospel really matters, and they'd come back. That's happening less and less. So if your entire church growth strategy is, well, once they get out into the wide world and realize how messed up things are, they'll come back. I have bad news for you. It's happening less and less. It does happen, but less and less than it it used to. 
And I know, I know that some of you have had to walk through the pain of a prodigal child. Some of you might be in it right now. And I have prayed every day of the life of my children that we would never have to deal with that. They're not all grown yet. So the jury's still out for the Scott family. I don't ever want to have to experience the heartache that I know that some of you are dealing with right now. So I want to be sensitive as I say this, okay? I don't want you to think I'm, I'm blaming the victim. That's not what I'm doing here. But I wonder if part of the reason for the acceleration in the number of kids who leave the faith after having grown up in it is because that the church in America has been so focused on attractional ministry or in some church communities even just biological growth and not on incarnational ministry and relational disciple-making. Jesus commanded us to do this. He showed us how. And we are fools if we think that we can get his results without his methods. Before we worry about multiplication, we should at least be replicating, right? In the Spliced series, we said, what's the goal? To meet your spiritual great-grandkids. Well, before that could ever happen, you actually have to become a spiritual parent first. So let's start there. That applies to all of us. So how do we do this? Well, I've asked Jason Scott, uh, our discipleship pastor, no relation that we know of, <laughs> probably way back there, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago, cousins or something. So way back, yeah, right. Um, you know, the, the joke is he's tall, dark, and handsome, and I'm medium. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, but Jason has really been pouring into this and working hard. He, he has kind of been leading from the second chair on this issue. And I've asked him to come and just kind of talk about how we do this. Just on nuts and bolts, practical level, what does this look like for the church, for our church, to be a disciple-making church? So, Jason, thank you for doing this today. Appreciate it. Thank you, brother. brother. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. So, as we see the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, we get there. These are some of Jesus' final words in the book of Matthew. Before we go into the book of Acts, and we see the church explode. So I would say if we get to the book, at the end of the book of Matthew, these final words are very important words. If we're going to get anything right, we need to get this right. I know it's almost too easy just to read through the book and just read right through those verses, and you just keep on moving along thinking, hey, this is up to this guy or someone else, or someone gifted in this area. This is a command that's given to all of us. One pastor, he put it this way. It's not just what we do to make disciples. That's, it's not just what we do. It's who we are yeah. as a people. When I'm standing for Jesus one day, and I tell him, oh, Lord, look at all the things I did for you. He's going to say, did you make disciples? He's going to say, I had one, one job. <laughs> you got you one had job. one job, you right? Yeah, yeah. Job. You know that meme, yeah. That's it. You had one job. Did you do that? Now say, even as a discipleship pastor, I'm going to be held accountable mm -hmm. to how we equip our people to be able to do likewise. It's not enough just to say, hey, go do it. I'm going to be held accountable for equipping you. And that's my personal conviction, and I think that's my calling. I know that's my calling. So we get through this. We, we get to the end of Matthew. We see that Jesus says, teaching them to obey all that I commanded to you. Sometimes right away we think, oh, is this a, almost like a class? We th hear teaching. Hmm. And maybe we skip over the obeying part. Yeah. This, 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 is, this is not a lecture. It's not a, a webinar. It's not a podcast. 
Even those things can be helpful, but sometimes we just end it there. He called us to go and make. So let's go back to see how our master did it. He is the master. He's a master of doing it. Let's see his methods, see how he does it. He modeled it. He equipped his own guys, his, his, his disciples, not just guys. There's, there was more than just 12, mind you. Yeah. He equipped them. He lived it out, modeled it out, lived it out, sent them out. They come back. Did they fail sometimes? Yeah. Did they say stupid things? Yeah. <laughs> Did Jesus forgive them? Yeah. Was there a lot of grace? Yeah. But he called them to participate in this. He was the guide alongside them. John Maxwell put it, in a, uh, put it this way in terms of Jesus' methods. He said, this is, this is part of research. He says, researchers tell us that we remember 10% of what we hear, 50% of what we see, 70% of what we say, and 90% of what we hear, see, say, and do. Jesus is still schooling us. You just need to go back to see how he did it. And I like this quote from Jim Putman. He says, we cannot divorce the person of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus from the methods of Jesus and still expect to get the results of Jesus. I want to say that one more time. We cannot divorce the person of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus from the methods of Jesus and still expect to get the results of Jesus. We are called to make disciples who make disciples. And I appreciate how you got back to Matthew 4.19. You know, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Unpacking a little bit of what that means to follow. His followers weren't just hearers, they were doers. This gets this idea of like their trainees, on-the-job training. They were called to participate. Following Jesus wasn't about hitting the like button and saying, all right, I'm following Jesus. (laughs) If it was that easy, right? If only, yeah. There was a lot more to it. They followed his life. They followed his teachings. They rearranged their life around the teachings of Jesus. Hmm. They were changed by Jesus. They followed him into his mission that he gives to his disciples and he gives to us. Now, in this next year, we're going to unpack a little bit more of this. It's going to require more time than we have today. But I just want to point it out and bring into focus that we are called to be disciple makers. And a real test of that is if those folks are able to go and do likewise to another generation, to our spiritual grandkids. Great grandkids. Great grandkids. Thank you. Yeah, four, I love it. Four generations, yeah. You're good with the words. <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> it's your job, right? Yeah. And you can't microwave disciples. It's not something you can just do instantly. There's no instant disciple. This is life on life. How many of you would rather have a, a, a crockpot meal than a microwave meal? It takes a while. Yeah. Our crockpot's going right now. I can't wait. So, yeah. <laughs> just in the quality, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, The quality. Yeah. Ooh, we can get into that. But it took Jesus three years to be in that authentic relationship with his 12. Now today we have the Holy Spirit. We got the, uh, uh, the scriptures to see Jesus' message, his method, and the mission that he calls us to and how all that works together. Even right now we're intentionally equipping our leaders uh, to lead others, to make disciples who make disciples. 
And in the meantime, as we go through this process, I just wanted to at least give you some practical steps, things that you could do in the right, now, right now in terms of disciple making. Now, this comes from the book called Stay the Course, Seven Practices of a Disciple-Making Church. Red book, it's little, not very big. If you go to, to discipleship.org, uh, you can get a free ebook from there. If you don't like the ebook, this is like five bucks, not that much. But it kind of, it's a little bit of a primer of what those practices are. At least, at least it'll give you an idea, and just a few questions to be able to think through. So you're going to walk through these with us. You start with who God has you, who's yeah. closest to you. Because mm-hmm. this is, this is I, I'm laying it out there right now, but you need to do it. I'm not asking you to do anything more than I'm doing. Yeah. That's a disciple. I'm not giving you a book and say, here, read it. I need to live it. And I hope we encourage one another to be able to live some of these out. I'm only going to go through four today. We don't have enough time for all seven. <laughs> this is, That's another This is something series. we're committing ourselves to over the long haul. You'll, yes, you'll, hear, you'll get yes, them eventually, yeah. Yes. So the first one, abiding in Christ. This goes back to John 15, where Jesus is the vine, where are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. If we want to bear fruit, we need to have a healthy relationship with Jesus. Mm. If we don't have this going right, how are we going to have this, our relationships with others? How's that going to be right? So what's your time? What's your time like with Jesus? How are you abiding in him? How are you getting in his word? How are you letting his word abide in you and allowing it to change you? Taking it from going from here to here and to do. Allowing it, allowing the overflow of your, out of the mouth, out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. How's that affecting your relationships at home, here at the church, or in the world? You might be intimidated by that, but I do want to remind you, Jesus, in that invitation, he's calling fishermen. He's not calling the religiously educated. He wants the humble in heart to say, here. If I get one thing right in this world, I want to get that right. Even if it's just one. Okay, next one, reaching the lost. This is for those who have not even, they don't even have a relationship with Jesus yet. But who are you praying for? Hmm. Who are you doing life with that you can invite into relationship? So this, this, this was a question that in my own personal time with the Lord, this is, this is a question that came up to me. How are you intentionally building relationships with people who don't know Jesus, where you live, work, and play? How are you praying for those personal relationships? So I had to think about what am I already doing? Who, who am I meeting along the way that I could actually just start to get to know? To know what's going on, the story of their lives. Maybe share some truths of my faith because if, I've, if I'm abiding in Christ, out of the mouth, comes the overflow of the heart, maybe I can drop some truth on them. Or even ask them, hey, how can I pray for you? Yeah. But be praying for those names, those names, because God may open that door and you may be there to be able to love them right then and there. If you want to start a revolution in your own discipleship, every day pray for two lost people that you know that come to faith in Christ. If you want God to kick you in the tail and get you rolling on this every single day 
at least two people that you know that, that don't know Jesus. And if you're like, I don't know if I know two people who don't know Jesus, that's job one. Let's get going on that. It really helps if you have other people praying along with you. Yeah, absolutely. It really yeah. does. Uh, number three, connect the unconnected. God's bringing people through the doors of the church. Some are spiritually lost. Others, you know, they, they may have a relationship, but how can we connect them to God in a deeper way? It could be sitting right here in between services or before service. Hey, what's your name? Shauna, great. How long have <laughs> you been coming? As long as you. Very yes, good. Very as good. long as you. So are you involved in the church at all? <laughs> Fantastic. What do you do here? How are you involved? I go to a women's ministry. You go to a women's ministry. Okay, this is where the metaphor breaks down because she couldn't <laughs> invite me into that. But, <laughs> but, or a life group. Or whatever you're doing at the church. Invite people to come along. Be there with them. So I'll even be there with you. I'll come alongside you. Um, so abiding in Christ... Right, abiding. Oh, I don't have that. Do we have it? Yeah, well, oh, it was up there. Yeah, abiding in Christ, right? That's the first one. Second yep. one, reach, uh, reach the lost. Reach the lost. Connect the unconnected. Connect the unconnected. What's number four? Chasing the strays. Chasing it's the strays. last one. Okay. Chasing the strays. These are people who have been connected. I know we do the best that we can to be able to call those. Maybe we haven't seen for a while. But if, you're, if you know someone that's you know, been coming here, whether it's in your group or class, what have you, call them up. Say, hey, haven't seen you for a while. We miss you. Just want to let you know, I'm praying for you. Are you all right? And actually mean it and actually pray for them. Be authentic about it. We do our best, but this is all of us. We're all called to do this. Can, I, get, can I give you some language on that? So when, when you do this, you've noticed someone's been missing from our fellowship for a while. Just say, this is so, the guy who, who wrote some of the books that we've been looking at, Jim Putman, his dad, um, Bill, was a mentor of mine when we did the church plant in Montana, and he would do this. He would literally pick up the phone. He, he was kind of a gruff old codger, and he was like, hey, it's Bill. I'm about to pray for you. What do you need? <laughs> uh, I'm going to head down to the coffee shop and try to, try to hang out with some lost people. Awesome. Let's pray. And he would do it right then. Okay, bye. Click. Like, that was it. <laughs> that was it. But it was enough, and it made a difference for me, and it really right. impacted me. Like, hey, I'm about to pray. What do you need? That can, that can, if you know someone who's been missing from our fellowship for a while, that's the, one of the best ways you can do to chase some strays. And, you know, if you ever attended, to some, attended something and you haven't been there for a while and you hear that somebody misses you, that means something. Yeah. That means you were a part of something. So chasing after strays. And one more thing, you know, in First Peter 5.8, you know, it talks about how uh, Satan is like a, a roaring lion looking for somebody to snatch up. You know, there's nothing more than Satan wants you just to isolate you hmm. from his people. That's how we grow together. It's in relationship with one another. It's hard to do that when you're doing it on your own. Yeah. It really is. Okay, so... I said I wasn't going to go through all of them, but shepherd towards spiritual maturity is just being able to equip our folks to be able to know um, where people are at in their spiritual walk and to help them grow. Mm -hmm. uh, identify, equip, and release leaders. And then finally, function as a team, just being able to uh, come together in unity. Mm -hmm. so, you'll uh, hear all these again. We'll, you'll we'll you'll hear it. This. Yeah. There you go. You'll hear it again. Um, 
And if you don't know, we do have sermon guides that go along with the sermons. Yeah. So I think I put a bunch of that in there. And if you go to our website, Chapel Rock website, it should be posted along with the sermon. So I just want to finish with this. This is a process. It's going to take some time. We've already begun this process. We've had some great discussion with the leaders. There's been a lot of prayer and a lot of fasting. But I feel like we got the conviction and the direction to know where we're going. We know, I do know that there are five components of a disciple-making church. So there is a plan, but it's going to take time. We've got a plan. We got, we're going to be working on this, and you'll hear more and more about it over the coming year. Thanks, so, Jason. Appreciate thank you for giving me the time. Absolutely. Stay the course. <laughs> oh, sorry. That would be my fault. Um, when, when Paul was on trial toward the end of his ministry, uh, you can read about this in Acts 24, 26, so you don't have time to go through all that right now, but um, Paul has an opportunity to speak before the Roman governor, Felix. And I want to draw your attention to something he said, and Carl, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here, verse 14. He, he talks about, listen, he goes, all the charges against me are baseless. Let's look at verse 14. He says, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. So even though disciples of Jesus have been called Christians for years by this point, that's kind of how they're known in public, he still says, yeah, I'm, I'm part of, the, I follow the way. And then two years later, when he's on trial again before Felix's replacement, Festus, and King Agrippa, Paul retells the story of Jesus, and he says in Acts 26, verse 26, he says, the king, Agrippa, is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. He's like, you know this stuff. This, this has happened publicly. He's talking about Jesus. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul says, short time or long, I pray to God, not only you, but all who are listening to me, the court today may become what I am except for these chains. <laughs> you see what he's doing there? For Paul, a follower of the way, that meant I'm going to try to make disciples when I'm on trial. <clears throat> wow. In the very, I mean, he, they, you know, first he knew they could sentence him to death. Now, that didn't happen. He appealed to Caesar, and God took him to Rome. But, you know, at the very end of his life, he's still trying to make disciples, still calling people to follow Jesus, and King Agrippa's question proves he understood exactly what Paul was doing. Listen to me. The only way that the church persists is when Christians take seriously and personally Jesus' call to make disciples. The, the, the church, being part of the church is not about buildings or budgets or backsides and seats. It's about one disciple of Jesus training another how to follow him, who trains another how to follow him, who trains another how to follow him, and so on, until he returns. Did you hear me? The way of Jesus is self-replicating. So if you're going to follow in the way, you have to be part of that. As we prepare to respond to this, I want to invite you to take a, a very introspective stance. I want you to hold up the mirror of your own soul here for a second. And, and I want you simply to ask yourself this question, am I a disciple worth replicating? Ask yourself that question, am I a disciple worth replicating?
Because if you are, and you're not actively doing what we're talking about today, you're depriving the kingdom of God on the west side of Indianapolis of a much needed resource. If you're not, why not? Now that's not my question. The conference that we were at last week, they asked that question. And, and, and you could feel the collective air in the room, kind of everybody's breath, ouch. And he pressed it even further. He said, if there were a hundred of you walking around in your community, how would it change? Ooh. So as we wrap up this series called This is the Way, you need to understand that part of the way is the self-replicating part. God is calling you to participate in the Great Commission. If you're his disciple, this is on you. It's on me. It's on all of us together. And we don't do it alone. Jesus said, I'll be with you. You're like, I am scared. I am terrified to do this. Guess what? You're not alone. And I'm asking you to do this with us. We're going to spend some more time. You're going to hear a lot more about this. It's not just kind of a one and done thing, okay, church? We're We're going to unpack this more. But ask yourself today, am I a disciple worth replicating? Maybe you've never started. You've got an opportunity to do it right now. In just a second, we're going to stand and sing together. And as we do, I would invite you to come to the front and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want him to be my Savior and Lord. I want to be baptized. I want to receive the Spirit of God to live in me. I want to walk with Jesus as his disciple. You can do that today. Maybe you're, you're, you're having a different response today. And this question makes you uncomfortable. It's okay. That's good for you. Maybe you want to grab someone next to you and say, hey, can we pray? Fred and I and Jason will be down front. We'd we'd love to pray with you, pray for you. Maybe you have some questions and want to have a conversation. Our next step room is open. One of our elders will be in there ready to receive you there. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and I want you to respond as God leads you. And maybe today it's simply to say, Lord, I, I have been deficient in my discipleship and I want to change that right now. Help me. So let's stand and we're going to sing together and you respond as God leads you.